Let me begin by asking this question for this sermon. Are there any indecisive people in the room? Would you consider yourself to be indecisive? Thankfully, I've put together a short quiz to help you assess if you are, in fact, indecisive. Question number one. Put up your hand if you return things to the store all the time. Come on, put them up nice and high. Now, if your spouse is lying, raise their hand up for them. Okay, second question on the quiz. Are you an indecisive person? Raise your hand if you let others decide to order for you at the restaurant. Go ahead, raise your hand up. You, I don't know, you just pick. Okay. Question number three. Raise your hand if you sometimes stare at your closet hoping the right outfit will raise its sleeve for you. I don't know. Which is it? Okay, raise your hand if you have flipped through the entire series of channels on your television before you've picked a station to watch. You gotta know everything that's on. Okay, last question on the quiz. Raise your hand if you have more than one favorite color. You can't pick one, can you? Well, hey, maybe you're an indecisive person. That's, that's who you are. That's how God made you. Uh, today, though, we're going to talk about a different form of indecision. Uh, this form of indecision, God is not in favor of. It's called spiritual indecision. Spiritual indecision. The whole point of today's story in the Bible is God saying to his people, make up your mind already. And spiritual indecision is the one form of indecision God simply will not tolerate. So what happens is he uses Elijah, his prophet, our hero of the faith today, to confront his people on their spiritual indecision. Uh, His people are living on the fence. And God wants to shove them off the fence. It's going to be a great message, one of the most famous stories in the Bible, but here it is. Bottom line, here's what it is. God wants the undecided to decide. That's it. God wants the undecided to decide. And he wants the decided to help the undecided decide. Let's pray and then we'll hear this story this morning. Lord in heaven, we trust that you are living, you are active. You want to make yourself known to those who are undecided. But how will you do it? And when you do, will those who are undecided receive what you've showed them? Lord, this morning, I just pray that you would speak to hearts in this room as only you can through your word. Lord, enlighten us and teach us. I pray that you would meet with us in this time. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Bible's open to 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18. This is week three of four with Elijah. Uh, And week one was when God turned off the rain. For how long did he turn the rain off for? Do you remember? Three and a half years. You think this economy's bad. Imagine no rain for three and a half years. Uh, That was week one, and God fed Elijah using bird delivery. uh, Sustained him, not only by the brook, but then up with the widow. And then last, last week, amazing story. The first time that someone had ever come back from the dead in Scripture. God would even give life to the dead. And here, week three, Elijah confronts the people finally after three and a half year long famine, confronts them on their indecision. Uh, chapter 18, verse 1. It says, After many days the word of the Lord came to Elijah. In the third year, 
saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. Ahab was the king. He was one of the worst kings reported in the Old Testament. His wife was even worse. Her name was Jezebel. She was a foreign wife who brought foreign worship to God's people. This was a dark day to be alive in Israel. Check out verse 17. Skip ahead to verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? He blames the famine on Israel, on, on Elijah, blames the trouble on Elijah. And Elijah answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, that's, that's Baal's goddess girlfriend, it's his girlfriend, who eat at Jezebel's table. Three and a half years passed, extreme famine. God finally sends Elijah to King Ahab. The first thing Ahab does is blames the entire thing on Elijah. Has he learned his lesson? Has he admitted what's really going on? No. You see, Israel's been trusting Baal, the storm god. His specialty of this god is rain and crops, thunder and lightning. Israel has been running to this god asking for more rain and better crops, and God decided to shut the rain off to teach them a lesson, a lesson they have not yet learned after three and a half years of misery. So God sends Elijah to confront them. Here's the first point we see here, the message basically one point is make up your mind already and then there's reasons why first reason is this because God will confront your indecision God will confront your indecision hey Elijah go to this king get face to face with this king he will want to kill you he will want to blame you but I want you to confront him in his indecision It took courage to do this. Tremendous courage for Elijah to go and find this king and confront him. But this was God's way of confronting Ahab in his indecision. He blames Elijah for the famine. Do you know people in your life who refuse to face the consequences of their choices? Do you know people who are blaming others for their own misery? Like you try to tell them that it's really their fault that this suffering and pain has come. They're just reaping what they've sown, but they want to point the finger. In fact, they may even conclude that you're really the biggest problem that's ever entered their life. Forget about what they've done to their, their life. You're the one who's bringing misery. In. They're just pointing the finger. Do you know anybody like that? The fact is that the king was the problem. And the queen It was his fault. He was allowing this false worship to go on and he was hurting his people because of it. But he didn't want to face that reality. Do you know that when a king was installed in Israel, one of the inaugural requirements was that the Bible of that day be recited to him? You know that? Wouldn't that be a great policy to institute in our great land? The president's got to sit down and someone's going to read the whole Bible to him before he gets to do one day of work. Okay, here's the thing. If this happened... Ahab was basically like not paying attention. I found, I found this book. It's an interesting book. It's only got one word in the whole book. Check it out. Here's the cover. The cover of this book is blah, blah, blah. It's the blah book. If you open it up, 
the only word inside the book is, uh, well, it's the same word on the cover. It's just filled with blah, 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 blah. And I have a feeling if the Bible of the day was in fact read to Ahab, this is all he got from it. Right? That's it. And I trust that there are some people in our church every week who come, maybe because you have to, maybe somebody's making you come. I don't know, but all you're really getting from me on a weekly basis is blah. I'm like that teacher in Charlie Brown. I'm no dummy. I can see it. Some pe- this is your, uh, for some people, this is your morning nap. They just, as soon as I start talking, their head goes back. Some of them try and hide it. They try and put their head down. But listen, I'm no dummy. I know it. You're simply not listening to what the Word of God says. Okay, and I know it because I was where you are. I was you. I didn't start listening to what this book said until I was a freshman in college. You know, I had to endure a whole lot of suffering and pain up to that point because I was not paying attention to what God was saying to me. And God eventually confronted me in my indecision and God will confront you in your indecision and God is confronting Ahab in his indecision. Sin had so hardened his heart that he would not face the fact that he was harming his people. A famine is awful. A famine and a drought is awful. Do you know that between 2010 and 2012, a famine struck in Somalia and a UN report recently that was released reported that 260,000 people died. Half of them were children under the age of five. 260,000 people dead. And this was only a two-year famine. Ahab's famine's going on three and a half years. And Elijah shows up, you would think he'd be begging for mercy, but instead, he'd rather continue to see his people die than admit he's the problem. And maybe that's your heart. Maybe you would rather continue to endure the suffering that you're bringing into your life than admit you're wrong. Maybe that's your heart. But God will confront you in your indecision. Elijah says to Ahab, correction, correction, you and your father You have abandoned the commandments. And your wife have abandoned the commandments, the word of the Lord. You have led the nation off of the safe trail of God's word. You are going against the grain of what the word of God says. You are the problem and you're on a dangerous and deadly path. Queen Jezebel was so treacherous and so awful. It says here that she was feeding the Baal prophets and the Asherah prophets at her table. 850 of them. This is government-subsidized idolatry. She also issued the order to kill all of the true prophets of the Lord. Hunted them down and executed them. And the ones that got away were forced to live in caves. They ran for their lives. This was government-issued execution of the true prophets of God. And Ahab has the nerve to say, here are the problems. God will confront your indecision. And not just of Ahab, but of the whole nation. Check it out in verse 20. It says in verse 20, So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, then follow Him. And the people did not answer Him a word. Make up your mind already. If the Lord is God, follow Him. If it's Baal, follow Him. And they did this. Cricket. Cricket. This is indecision. 
Now, I sympathize with them. What's it like to have the king and the queen who are killing the the prophets of the Lord? You You go public and endorse what they're believing and then you're Family members may turn on you, but you go public and you say, I'm a worshiper of the one true God, and then the queen might come after you. I have some sympathy for them, and God does too, because they are in a situation filled with so much pressure. The consequences are so great, and God brings Elijah to help them in this moment of indecision. The bottom line is, they were living on the fence. They were living without conviction. They were wavering, and they were noncommittal, limping between two opinions. The New American Standard translates that hesitating. Bottom line, they were undecided. You've got to make your mind up. God will push you to do it. I came across a picture of a sports fan recently, and this sports fan has not made his mind up who he's going to root for. All right, check this out. Who is he cheering for? Like the paint says one thing, but the hat says another. This is a man who is undecided, and he needs, he needs to make up his mind. Am I right? It's a good spot for an amen, right? He's got to pick one. He's got to take the hat off or change the paint color. I mean, either he's going to be with this guy, he's, you know, join that team, and, or he's going to be with this guy, but he's got to make up his mind who he's going to go with. Make up your mind already. Sometimes the truth hurts. Hey, being undecided as a sports fan, not a big deal. But when you're undecided spiritually of your core allegiances, your convictions, when you're on the fence, when you're flip-flopping, when you're waffling, God will move. He'll bring you to a crisis decision because he will confront your indecision. Where Israel is, I would say our country is. Do you agree? We want to honor God to some degree, right? But we won't speak of him with conviction. We want him in the pledge. We want him on the money. But we don't want them in the classroom, or certainly not the textbooks, and definitely not the courtroom. Um, which is it going to be? Indecision. And I would ask you this. Would you describe yourself as being undecided? If I were to ask you, it was just you and me, and we were out having coffee, and I were to say, true or false? Jesus Christ is the Lord who came from heaven into the world to save sinners, died on the cross, rose on the third day, is now seated at the right hand of God the Father in triumph, in glory, is the only one who can give you eternal life forever. True or false? Are you decided or are you undecided? Because God wants to reveal it to you that that is true. God doesn't want you to be undecided. Just like Israel that was sitting there like, well, we we might not even know which one is right. Like, they say their God is right and he says his God is right and we really want to know. God can make that clear to you. And maybe, maybe there's a genuine search going on in your heart. Maybe you're saying, well, I don't want to believe it because my mom believes it. I don't want to believe it because this person told me I had to believe it. I really want the truth to be made known to me. Well, you're going to see that God honors that desire. God will confront your indecision. How does he do it here? This is not the way he'll do it every time, but look at verse 22. It says in verse 20. Two, then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood. But put no fire to it. 
I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. You call upon the name of your God, I will call upon the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, He is God. And all the people answered, It is well spoken. This is a spiritual duel, a high stakes contest between two different faiths. High stakes. If Elijah's wrong, he doesn't survive the day. Capital crime in Israel to be a false prophet. And Elijah said, let's figure this out right now together. Who's right? Who's wrong? And the people said, let's do it. The contest would be decided by fire. That would make our grill off pretty interesting if everybody just kind of got their grill already. And the grill that God lit was the one that make it real easy. The contest is fire, lightning from the sky. Why fire? Well, fire symbolizes the presence of deity, God being there. Fire also is Baal's specialty. God gives Baal the uh, advantage here. Tell you what, the best thing Baal does is thunder and lightning. Okay, we'll play his game. He's known as the Lord of fire, in fact. This could also indicate the favor of the God to answer. The God who... uh, throws the fire on the offering and the sacrifice would be looking with favor on the sacrifice and would grant the request. What's the request here? Rain. After three and a half years, we need to know which God will send the rain. Imagine if there was a town hall meeting called and they said, we found a button. It's a magic button. We're going to push it. It's going to fix the whole economy. Housing market's going to go up. All the jobs in the world are going to be created. It's just a magic button. I mean, that room would be filled to overflow seating. And the people here find out the economy is going to change today. Which God's going to do it? It's an amazing moment. But God sets this up as an adversarial conflict. Me versus them. We learn something about our God here. Hey, hey. Make up your mind already. Why? Because God will confront your indecision. But second, jot this down, because God is ardently opposed to competing truth claims. God is ardently opposed to competing truth claims. They can't both be right. One is right, one is wrong. We're going to figure out right now who is right. The people love the idea. Reading on. Verse 25. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull. Prepare it first, for you are many. Call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. They took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. At noon, Elijah mocked them. So like three hours had passed. Nine o'clock, answer us. Ten o'clock, answer us, Baal. Eleven o'clock, come on and answer us. And then it was lunchtime. Still nothing. Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he's a god. Either he's musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. These are things they believed about their god. The so-called god could go on a trip or, or fall asleep. They even believed their god could die. And in times of drought and famine, they believed that their god was dead, which means, in effect, they were trying to bring their own god back from the dead. Verse 28, and they cried aloud, louder, and cut themselves. Now comes the self-abuse. 
after their custom with swords and lances until their blood gushed out upon them. In their God's twisted reasoning, injuring themselves could either please this God or get him to answer or even even get him back from the dead. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of oblation, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. It's dinner time now. Nothing. Why is God ardently opposed to competing truth claims? Two reasons. Jot this down. Other gods are false and futile. Other gods are false and futile. False, meaning it's a healthy awakening, a moment of education for God's people to realize they can't get rain from this God. It's harmful for the Lord who gives the rain to let them go to this other false God to try and get it. It's false, not true. And he's teaching them a painful lesson. This is the only way they would learn it. Every dad knows that there comes a time where you have to teach your kids painful lessons. Am I right? Am I right, dads? It's going to hurt, but they got to learn it. Am I right? I found a, this is what good dads do. I found a picture of a dad. His daughter got in trouble. His teenage daughter got in trouble. So he had to teach her a painful lesson. He had to punish her so she'd never do it again. How does he punish her? Well, check this, this out. He gave his daughter a t-shirt that she had to wear to school. And on the shirt was dad's face. And under the picture, it says, try me. She doesn't look too happy about that, does she? He looks real happy about that. Good dads teach their kids painful lessons, right? And, and God the Father is teaching his people a painful lesson. Stop going to bail for rain. Stop going to bail for crops. It's false, not true. It's futile. It's harmful, not helpful. And God wants this lesson to be taught. No voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. How does God feel about other religions? He wants people to know they're false, not true. Why? Because whatever else is ascribed to other gods is stolen from the one true God. You realize that other religions are basically identity theft? Have you ever had your identity stolen? Somebody got a hold of your credit card number or got your license or social security number or whatever? Have you ever had that happen? Yeah, I had that happen. It's just small, small identity theft. Somebody got one of my credit cards and they started buying sunglasses in California. Started seeing all these, you know, every month, $59 pair of sunglasses from LA. $59 pair of sunglasses in California. And I'm like, I'm not buying sunglasses and I'm not in California. Who's using my credit card? This is theft. Called up my bank, had to get the card canceled, opened up a new card, right? Identity theft is theft. Stealing something that belongs to you, putting it in their own account, using it for their own pleasure, right? Spiritual identity theft is taking something, an attribute, a provision, that belongs to the one true God and ascribing it to someone else. It's called stealing. It's called theft. And Christians can't be okay with it. Listen, if you truly are convinced that there is one God in heaven, and if you peered into the spiritual realm, you would see one holy, awesome God. Anyone who takes an attribute of our God or takes a provision of our God and gives it to a God that you believe is not true is stealing from your God. 
And what's happening in that transaction is not true and it's not helpful. It's false and it's harmful to the person and to the God that you believe in. And you shouldn't be okay with it. Baal worship was certainly not helpful as the followers of Baal and the prophets of Baal were wildly in a trance dancing around their altar, bleeding on the ground. You understand how painful false worship is. Baal worship was immoral. It was perverse. It was sexual. They would kill their own children and offer them to this alleged God. Why why can't they just both be right? Why can't Elijah say, you could worship Baal, you could worship God, coexist. You keep slicing yourself up with blades and bleeding all over the ground and offering your children to death to this God. That's o- it's okay. And then, and then you worship the one true God. We simply can't be okay with all of them being true. But today it's fashionable in our society to believe that they can all be true or at least accepted or respected. I think there's three ways this is expressed. You can jot these down. They're not in your notes. Many want you to be okay with salvation by sincerity. Salvation by sincerity. Meaning, as long as this person I know, like, really believes it. Like, I mean, if they really are genuine in what they believe, who am I? You know, like, that's okay. As long as they really believe it. But where else does sincerity create truth? Where else does sincerity create? I really believe that I got 100% on that test. I mean, I really believe it. Okay, like with all of my soul. I really believe that the Cubs are going to win the World Series. Like, I mean, I really, no, 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 you don't understand. I truly, madly, deeply believe it. Listen, believe it all you want. Sincerity does not create truth, okay? Sincerity does nothing to truth. And it might feel well-meaning to say, yeah, but they, I mean, they so believe it. They are like so on board with it. It wouldn't, salvation by sincerity. Next one, salvation by show of hands. Salvation by show of hands. Maybe you're intimidated by the sheer volume, the number of people who believe something. All around the world, people believe this. Millions of people believe this. If they were put up their hands, there would be so many hands in the air. How could it be wrong? How can I tell all of them they're wrong? There's just the polling data. There's just such a... Okay, but does that work in other areas of life? I mean, there were a whole lot of Nazis in Germany and... Okay, everybody put your hands up. Wow, there's a lot of them. Like a lot of them. They must be... Does that work? That doesn't work. Salvation by show of hands doesn't work, nor does salvation by sincerity. You know, the third one, salvation by sandwich. Sandwich is probably the most common. I'm just going to smush all the religions together. You know, they all basically say the same thing. Take a little from this one, a little from that one. I'm just going to make a religion sandwich. And you know what? God's going to be okay because as long as we get pieces of each one, it's going to come together and it's going to... God will not accept salvation by sincerity or show of hands or sandwich because God is ardently opposed to competing truth claims. Why? Because other gods are false and they're futile. Hey, ask yourself this. In your heart, do you truly believe that there is one almighty God in heaven and there is only one way, one truth, one life that he has provided. And do you believe that's not only binding on your life, but that's binding on the eternity of everyone who's in your life? 
Do you really believe that? Because that's what the Bible teaches. God will confront your indecision because he's ardently opposed to competing truth claims. And and here's the big one. God will use you to turn people to him. Write that down. God will use you to turn people back to him. If you're available and you have the conviction, he's going to put you to work. Reading on in verse 30. Prophets of Baal are worn out, bleeding, done, failed. Verse 30, it says, Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. All the people came near to him. I like this. You've got to take this in. Get closer. Get closer. Everybody get closer. All right, so he gets them real close. Real close. That's going to be important in a moment. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Some teach that this is the one Baal, the Baal worshippers were using. I don't think that. It says they made their own altar. I think this is an altar of the Lord that had been used in the past, but at Jezebel's order had been torn down and thrown to the ground. He repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. He made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seas of seed. This is so symbolic and so picturesque. I love it. We have to, we have to hold this image for a moment. This altar that had been used before for worship was thrown down. And Elijah picks 12 stones up, one representing each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And as he's doing that, you can see that it's as if the whole spiritual heart of the nation had been thrashed to the ground. And he's starting to reestablish it. He's bringing the whole nation back together to worship the one true God. The altar had been thrown down and not used, and now he's lifting up the whole spiritual heart of the nation again. In addition, the hearts of the people who are there, the altar in their heart is being reconstructed as God is teaching them faith again. This is so symbolic. And after he builds the altar, he puts the sacrifice on it, digs a trench around it, and in verse 33, he put the wood in order to cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. He said, fill four jars of water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. He said, do it a second time. They did it a second time. He said, do it a third time. They did it a third time. The water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. He wanted it to be impossible for him to do any sort of magic trick here to light it himself. He wanted it to be impossible for God even. Soak it! Soak it again! Soak it again! Verse 36, And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, listen to what he says, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, They fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. This is so amazing. He gathered them all. Get closer. Get closer. Get really close. 
And then after he set the whole thing up, lightning struck like five feet away from them. Have you ever been close to lightning when it struck? You ever been real close? Closest I ever got was like 50 yards. I was in a classroom filled with students and out in the field where the kids play, uh, I mean like sports and stuff, it hit. And I mean it left this charred circle of black grass. And, and when it hit, the whole room filled up with light and then, <laughs> I mean it the whole room, they were screaming. I was screaming. What was that? Imagine lightning striking like right here, right now. And the reaction was terror. They fell down on their faces and they said, The Lord, the Lord is God. We give up. We give up. The Lord is God. Instantly. Why? Why? Because they're terrified. Why? Well, because idolatry was a capital crime in Israel punishable by death. They knew that God had more lightning where that came from. And they were guilty, and the king was guilty, and the queen was guilty, and the prophets were guilty. And they fell flat on their faces when they understood they were wrong. There was no more deciding. They made up their mind in holy fear. The Lord is God. God will use you to turn people to Him, but you have to believe that the Lord wants you to reach out to people, to turn their hearts toward Him. Hey, listen, I believe that in every human heart there is an altar devoted to the Lord only, and it's been thrown down. And I believe if you reach out with the truth that God will begin to repair that altar. But only God can throw fire down upon that heart and bring a person back to worship Him. You can't do that. Elijah couldn't do that. Only God could do that. But are you even reaching out? Are you even helping people to arrive at that place of decision? Do you even believe in your heart that it's your job to share your faith with other people? Do you even believe that? I've heard it said so many times, well, who am I to tell someone else what to believe? Uh, Correct. Correct. What authority do you have to tell someone else what to believe? None. But what authority do you have to tell yourself what to believe? None. Truth transcends you entirely. And when I hear somebody, a Christian, say, well, who am I to tell them what to believe? You know what you're really saying? If God has told you this is true and you believe it, and God has told you to go and make disciples and share it, and you refuse and you say, who am I to tell them what to believe? Do you know what you're really saying? You're really saying, who is God to tell them what to believe? If God has told you to go and told you to speak and you stay silent, you think you know better than God. I know God told me to go, but who am I to tell them what to believe? Therefore, who is God to tell them what to believe? With a sentimental heart, in the name of not wanting to hurt someone's feelings, you're claiming for yourself more authority over truth than God. But God will use you to turn people toward himself if you make yourself available. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking that I don't like the Christians who tell other people what to believe. They're kind of nerdy. The way they go about it is kind of obnoxious. I don't want to be that. I know this. We had a mission team come up at my last church one year. They were from the deep south. And uh, and this one guy had this rainbow tie-dye hat on that said, Jesus loves you. And then he wore this T-shirt And they led a backyard Bible club in our yard. And he wore a t-shirt. And on the t-shirt was a little stick figure. A little stick figure like this. And there was flames under the stick figure. And the t-shirt said, friends don't let friends burn in hell. 
He came to the backyard Bible club to teach the children wearing the tie-dye hat and the little stick figure shirt. And then he started going door-to-door in our neighborhood to tell people about Jesus. One of our neighbors came by and they're like, who is this weird man who just came to my door? And I'm like, I know, I'm sorry, he's with us. He's going to be in heaven. I mean, that hat is not getting into heaven, but he's going to get in heaven. These people, right? You're like, I don't want the image of being the nerdy Christian who wants to always tell people, right? Okay, but here's the thing. I'm not saying you have to be anybody other than yourself, right? I'm just saying you have to have the courage, frankly, to to even name the name of Jesus uh, with adoration and respect and allegiance, to just even naturally work it into your conversations. Um, Do you do that? I love what Elijah said here. He says first, Let it be known you are God. He was very concerned about God's reputation. And if you want to share your faith, you first have to say, I don't care about my reputation. I don't care what they think of me. I want want it to be known that you are God. I want God's reputation to be secure here, even if it costs me mine. What will they think? No, don't ask that. What will God think? Ask that. Then Elijah said this, I am your faithful servant. Let it be known that I am your faithful servant. Hey, are you allowing people in your life to not figure out that you're in in fact a sold-out follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? Or do you want everyone to know, unmistakably clear, I'm loud, I'm proud, I'm a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you want that to get out? Does the thought of people want what what if you died this week? And what if they had your funeral? And what if people were like, I think she was. What if the people closest to you are still wondering? I want it to be known that I am your faithful servant. Elijah's name means my God is Yahweh. It's a pretty cool name. He's living up to that. And then it says, Lord, let it be known that you are turning their hearts back. True for me, true for you. True for me, true for you. And I want the Lord to use me to turn your heart to what is true. God wants the undecided to decide. God wants the decided to help the undecided decide. It's his way. It's his plan. He's not going to send a freak lightning bolt as you're about to eat your lunch. That's not how he does it. He uses his servants to get his word out. Hey, even if you feel outnumbered, even if the odds are 850 to 1, are you courageous enough to reach out and to share the truth? Make up your mind already because God will confront your indecision because God is ardently opposed to competing truth claims because God will use you, even you, to turn people to Him. And here's the last one, and this is the hardest truth to hear, but it must be said, because false teaching leads to destruction. Because false teaching leads to destruction. False prophecy and idolatry was a capital crime in Israel. You have to understand times were different then. This was a theocracy. God said, I am the king. And therefore, he outlawed all false worship, punishable by death. He told this to Moses. They set it down in stone. It was absolutely a mandate. The the prophets of Baal would know it. The Israelites would know it. No surprises here. And I'm not saying that this is anything that should be brought into this world or this age. This is not what God expects 
today, but it says in verse 40, Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. They seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Slaughtered them. Why? Because false teaching, false worship ultimately leads to destruction. This is a warning to all of us who are in the valley of indecision. The warning is that where they're taking us is punishment, destruction. And this judgment on earth is meant to warn us of the judgment in heaven that's going to happen. And it's going to fall on each one of us. If you believe in judgment, if you believe that God's judgment will fall upon each one of us, each one of the people in your life, that will motivate you to reach out in love. Here the people were terrified and flat on their faces because they knew that Deuteronomy 13 made false prophecy a capital crime and God could have righteously killed every one of them. In mercy, he only took out the ones who were leading it. Hey, do you fear God's judgment? Listen, I mean, are you terrified of God's judgment? Falling on you for eternity. Falling on your loved ones for eternity. I feel like in our country, there's no fear of God's judgment. There's no fear of what God will do to sinful people in this world and in the next. Are you horrified at the thought of God's judgment coming? I think many here today are not. They're not. But based on this study and what we've already read from the Old Testament, would you be terrified of God's judgment if you saw with your own eyes the whole earth flooded up to the top of the mountains like Noah, knowing that every person, all of humanity, just drowned to death? What if you saw Sodom smoldering in ashes knowing that every inhabitant, young and old, just burned to death? Would you believe in the judgment of God then? What if you felt the ground shake as the walls of Jericho crashed to the ground and then you heard the screams as the whole city was put to the sword at God's command? Would you fear God's judgment then? What if you lived in Egypt and the Nile turned to blood and the sky went dark for days? What if you held your own firstborn dead in your arms? Would you then fear the judgment of God? What does God need to do to convince you that His horrifying, awful, eternal judgment is coming and it's coming on you? What else does he need to do? And it's my job to warn you in advance. It's coming. It's coming. And Christians need to believe it's coming. Charles Spurgeon said, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. If they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees. Let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for. Israel got a major warning, a wake-up call, because God was gracious with them. And maybe you're getting that warning and that wake-up call today. But God's will is not to condemn you. God's will is not to hurt you or to judge you. The story has a happy ending. Elijah went up on the top of the mountain. He prayed seven times for the rain to finally return. And then a torrential downpour came upon the land, flooded the entire nation. And as God's people went back to their homes and looked out and saw the rain falling, they knew, they knew that God had returned to them. They knew that His favor and His presence was flooding into their lives. And they knew that their own hearts had returned to the one true God. 
God wants to bless you. God wants to fill your life with His presence, with His Spirit. But you have to make up your mind. I want to give you the chance to make up your mind. I want to give you the chance once and for all here to take the truth that you've heard about Jesus. Jesus is God's provision, the light of the world who came in. And I want you, in that moment of decision, to decide that you need what only Jesus Christ can give you. You need forgiveness for sins. You need freedom from bondage. You need life eternal. And the only place to find it is if you ask the Lord Jesus to be your Savior. Right now, I want you to just bow your heads and close your eyes. I want you to pray with me. I want you to reflect on everything that you've heard. And I want you, in this moment right here of decision, to search your heart, search your past, Based on what you've heard, is this something that you're willing to rest your eternity on? Do you believe there is one true God in heaven? Do you believe you've sinned and broken his law? Do you believe he sent his son to die on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin? Do you believe his son died and rose again? Do you believe he is seated at the right hand of God the Father? Have you ever asked him for the free gift of eternal life? Have you ever fallen on your knees, declared it with your mouth, the Lord, he is God? I'm going to give you a moment of silence right now in your own heart to pray to your God, to ask him for salvation.